You're listening to Manx Radio and this is Judith Lay welcoming you to the podcast edition of The Archive Room. Manx Radio's treasure chest of stories of island life from years gone by, told by the people who were there. So come on in and let me take you for another gentle stroll down Manx memory lane. Two firemen and a couple more of Qualtro's queer ones. Once again, I'm spoiled for choice when choosing stories both fascinating and funny from our store of gems in the Manx Radio archive room. So let's get started. We began this series in the company of Hector Duff and Arthur Underhill, reminiscing about early days in the police force. So I thought we should take a look at early days in another of the island's emergency services. So here's Mike Ventry talking with David Collister about his career in the Isle of Man Fire and Rescue Service. But the conversation starts with a surprise revelation. Mike Ventry isn't Manx-born. What happened was my mother went over to see her mother in Liverpool when she was pregnant and a boat journey upset her and I was born in Liverpool. But I came back a week later, yeah. so actually I'm a scouser. But I've lived here for 73 years. <laughs> well, you, you went to school here, presumably, didn't you? Oh, yes, I went yeah. to school here, sure, yeah. yeah. What, what first job did you have when you left school? I went as a, as a painter and decorator. I wanted some sort of a trade, so I went as a painter and decorator, working with, with old Jimmy Kinnon. And he taught me my trade, and I spent five years working with Jim Kinnon. Then, of course, I got deferred because there was national service on in those days. Mm. Following that, I spent two years in the, the Royal Marine Commandos, and I enjoyed every minute of that. <laughs> that was excellent. To be honest with you, after I'd done two years in there, I very quickly realised I had to do something totally different. And uh, eventually, I, I got in, myself into the fire service. I was an auxiliary fireman, a, a part-time fireman, for about nine months. And then I was offered a full-time job. I could see a future in the fire service. I had to take a cut in money to do it. The regular pay for a fireman then was less than it was for a tradesman. Mm. 1952. I had 30 years, actually, in the fire service. I'm retired now 20-plus years. I did my full 30 years. When you went into the fire service, presumably that was in Douglas then, was that, that would be the old fire station? That's right. Yeah, that's the old fire station in John Street. It was, in fact, the Borough of Douglas Fire Brigade, and uh, it was in John Street, partly in John Street, actually, because we had one fire appliance in the fire station at John Street, and we had four other fire appliances in Lord Street and a wooden garage down there. And it was a question of, if you wanted one fire appliance, you would turn out from John Street... And if you wanted two fire appliances for an incident, some of the firemen would have to run down into Lord Street, open up the, the garage and jump on the fire appliance and then go to the, to the yeah. incident. What was the fire station like there? I mean, did you have this wonderful pole that firemen used to slide down? <laughs> no, we didn't, actually. <laughs> we had a basement, you know, and you can't climb up a pole, David. <laughs> How many staff would there have been there at oh, that gosh. time? Not enough. <laughs> when I joined the service, there was seven full-time firefighters and 20 part-time firefighters. And out of those seven full-time firefighters, we had a chief officer, Fred Corty, a gentleman. Mm-hmm. His deputy was Bert Kenner. Sadly, Bert lost his life on Athol Street in a fire. Uh. And then we had three station officers, and we had a couple of firemen, myself and, and Buxer Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was it, and, and, and 20 part-timers. 
you're just dealing with Douglas, Onken, Braddon, yeah. Santon, Moran. There's seven fire stations on the island, part-time station at Laxey and Ramsey and Kirkmichael, Peel and Port Air and Castletown. Yeah. And of course the airport have their own fire service. Well, the Ireland government took over all the fire services out of town in 1964. And then in 1965, they took over Douglas. So if somebody had a fire back in that at time in the, in the 50s, early 50s, mid 50s, You'd ring 999 to get the call out, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, there was no 999s when I started. Oh, was there? No, no, no. The number was 3333 and 3334. We had two lines in. And if those lines were occupied, well, you had to wait. <laughs> well, actually, the, the, the operator would come on and say, I have an emergency call for you. Mm. And you would just they would just cut the other person off. So presumably the auxiliary men of that time would have to be called out as well at times, wouldn't they? Yes, absolutely. How yeah. fast could they get to the... Uh, well, it depends on the time of day, actually, David. You know, the, actually, the, the fastest time for turnouts was at night. Most of the firemen that we had, auxiliaries, lived very close to the fire station. Mm. And we could turn out, from when we're all in bed fast asleep, yeah. we could turn out in about two and a half minutes. You see, the problem was there was only one fire officer on duty at night. We only had a staff of seven. <laughs> yes. And one of those was a mechanic. We had to man the station 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mm. This was basically done by two men, actually, Stan Skinner and Jim Sloan. They used to work 84 hours a week, 84 hours every week. And also, they had a fire bell in their houses. And when there was a serious fire, they would be called, and they would turn out and drive one of the fire plants. You had to guarantee to provide cover 24 hours a day, seven days a week right. and that's not easy believe you me you yeah. know if you wanted to go out as an example with your wife or your girlfriend or something to the pictures you had to call into the fire station on the way down and say i'm going to the regal cinema second house and you would write it on on the blackboard and then if there was a serious fire they would ring the regal cinema there's firemen in the building would you please send them up and the usherettes used to run down the aisle backwards, flashing their torch across, back and forward, back and forward. And that was the signal for the firemen to get out. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So you see firemen jumping up and leaving their wives and girlfriends and all going, running off to the fires. And they knew what to do and we knew what it, what it meant, but no one else did. <laughs> the first fire I attended actually was a very serious fire. It was the roof of King William's College. The Castletown Brigade would be there first. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Castletown Brigade were there first, yes, that's for sure. We arrived on, on this Albion vehicle that we had, which was, in fact, an open fire appliance, you know. We were sitting on the outside of the fire appliance. <laughs> so by the time you arrived at the fire, you were freezing cold, <laughs> probably soaking wet. They had a bell, didn't they? <laughs> yes, they, they all had bells. Sometimes it was a damn nuisance because uh, you would get a young fireman not long learnt to drive a fire appliance. He'd be trying to get to the fire as quickly as he could. And we found that the more the bell was rang, the faster the fireman would go. <laughs> and it got to be that, you know, in the end you had to say to him, look, slow down, lad, slow down. And, and, and the bell would be continually ringing and whoever was ringing the bell, you'd have to tell them to stop and just do it when you, you got into traffic. Mm. The only time you couldn't use them actually was on the promenade when the horse trams were there because they would frighten the horses. All right. Many of Mike Ventry's fire service colleagues enjoyed football and most played regularly for St George's. David Collister wondered if a match had ever been affected by players being called off the pitch to attend a fire. We had to abandon one match. We were playing the police and we had to abandon one match and we, we were really enjoying it because um, 
it was a, a good football match, but it was a, a load of fun as well. We had a, we call a gate net stretched across our goal to stop them from scoring. And of course, a gate net is illegal, you know, for, for rabbit hunting, etc. And the, the policeman who was the centre forward at the time, he turned out in a pair of boxing gloves. And anybody that came near him used to get a good thump along the ear. <laughs> But I Not exactly football, that was it. I can't remember the score. <laughs> yes, happy days. Yeah, they, they were very good. The turning point for the island's fire service came in the year 1965, when it was taken over by the government. More firefighters were recruited, and in due course, the new purpose-built station in Peel Road offered not only a central base for the fire appliances, but full training facilities too. Other early day problems were also solved. The, the problem that we had when we were a borough brigade was the fact that there wasn't enough uniforms to go round. Well, there was, but only just. Mm. There was no such thing as a spare uniform. So if you got really soaking wet, tough. There was no way you could, you could, you could change the uniform. Mm. And also, if a man went out of the service and he had to be replaced, his replacement got that man's uniform right. and he got his boots as well. <laughs> now this was a little problem, David. I can remember a Fred Courty, the chief at the time, saying to me, there's a young lad working on the roof down in King Street. He wants to join the fire brigade as a part-timer. Will you slip down and talk to him and casually find out what size <laughs> shoes he takes? <laughs> And if he's a nine, tell him to come up and see me at five o'clock and he can join the fire brigade. So for him, the qualifications for joining was having a size nine foot. <laughs> That's tremendous, isn't it, really? <laughs> Apart from having size nine shoes, then, what, what makes a good firefighter? You know, I'm glad you asked me that. <laughs> he's got to be well-trained, obviously, you know. And he's got to have a knowledge of just about everything. Building construction... Joinery, plumbing, you know, for central heating fires, etc. Yeah. Hydraulics, he's got to know about the study of behaviour of water. Electricity, chemistry, you know, you don't know what you're going to come across. They've got to know about salvage work, hydrant location. They've all got to be heavy goods drivers. They've got to have the ability and the qualifications to operate turntable ladders and hydraulic platforms. First aid, ladder work, working from heights, hydraulic cutting equipment, etc. And, of course, hotels and, and larger establishments didn't have fire doors, they didn't have precautions, they didn't have really anything for a long time, did they? No, they didn't. This was sad, really, because we've had some nasty, nasty fires, especially along Douglas Promenade and, and things like that, mm. because of the spread of smoke and fire, which was used to be left uncontrolled. Then eventually they started putting fire escapes on the outsides of the buildings, and now they, in fact, protect the internal staircase and allow people to escape down the normal staircase, mm. which is much, much better. I can remember an incident. We had a serious fire in the basement of the Empress Hotel. And uh, as a result, the, the, the fire spread quite a bit, and we managed to contain it. But, of course, there's a lot of smoke, and the smoke went right through the building. We spent a lot of time getting people out of the building. Half the lads were employed dealing with the fire, and the other half were inside the building, getting the people out and down the stairs in, in the smoke. Arthur Corliss and myself knocked on a door, and then opened it, and there was a man sitting on the bed, and he had severe arthritis, and he couldn't move. He couldn't walk down the stairs. So we picked him up, and we sat him on a Bentwood chair, which was in the room, 
and then we picked the bent with chair up oh, and we carried them down the right. stairs. Yeah. So that, that's another method of rescue. <laughs> yes. Um, and at, while all this was going on, um, there was ladders put up outside the building and we were bringing people down the ladders. And I can remember um, a, young, a young fireman, I won't mention his name, but it was Alan Christian. he just joined the fire service. It might well have been his very first fire, David. And I put him holding the bottom of a ladder while the people were coming down the ladder from the bedrooms. Yes. And out onto the ladder stepped a young lady in one of these, they called a shorty nighty in those days. Mm. And there was a searchlight on the ladder and on the people coming down. And I can remember Alan looking up and looking down and looking up. <laughs> and he turned around to me and he said, do we get paid for this as well? <laughs> <laughs> so there's a bit of humour as well with it, of course. You must have had some real characters to work with. Yes, a lot of a lot of characters, especially in the old days, you know, when the lads in the service were in it purely and simply to help the general public, you know, mm. because the pay was so small. They just loved the fire service, those lads. I can remember, as an example, um, Stan Skinner driving a fire appliance along Douglas Promenade in the summer, and he hit a horse tram as he was going past. And he actually knocked the horse tram from one uh, rail onto the other rail. Really? So instead of coming, it was going. <laughs> <you know what? laughs> and he had to do a report on it. And I actually read his report, and his report said that the horse tram swerved and hit me. <laughs> <laughs> I can recall another time when we had a serious fire in a garage. We couldn't get in because it was just too hot, so it was too dangerous to go in. So we just simply lashed a lot of water into this old garage. And uh, when it was, uh, the fire was out and the smoke was just starting to clear, a young fireman and myself, we ventured into the garage. And he was walking ahead of me. And suddenly he just disappeared. I thought, for God's sake, where's Jimmy gone? And when I looked down, what had, what had happened was the, the, the pit had been left open. And we'd filled the pit up with water. Right. And Jimmy had stepped right into the pit, and all I could see was his helmet floating <laughs> We went to a fire in, in Bucks Road, and uh, it involved a, a couple of bedrooms, and actually underneath the bedrooms it was a cellar, and the floor had collapsed into the cellar, and, and so the firemen were down in the cellar when the fire was out, and they were doing a bit of salvage work. And one of them came across a bottle, and he had a sniff at it, and he said to his mates, hey, it's rum. So he put it to his mouth, and he's just taking a drink out of this bottle. And the lady whose house it was, she shouted down the stairs, excuse me, fireman, she said, you might find a bottle of rum down there. If you do, keep it for me. It's got my appendix in it. <laughs> of course, this fireman went outside, and he was sick in the garden. <laughs> Thank you, Mike Ventry, looking back on his life as a fireman on the island. Now let's meet our second fireman, but this one is responsible for lighting rather than putting out fires. He's David Wollstoneholm, who started work as a fireman on the Isle of Man steam railway in the summer of 1967. When I started, I was an apprentice. I was doing um, coach fitting in the winter and um, firing in the summer, and I was getting six pounds a week. Later on in the season, I found that um, I couldn't manage off this, so uh, I got uh, made up to a fireman, and I was getting about, uh, I think, about 13 pounds. 
But was what was that, the fireman's ambition to become a driver, was it? Um, yes, but um, in the old days, it was a case of, uh, you know, one man had to die before another man took his place. I started uh, June 1967, and the engine driver who I started with who trained me was Percy Kane. Uh, he lived in Ramsey. What sort of training was involved there? Well, basically, to, to keep steam when, you, <laughs> when you're going along. You know, there's quite a technique, really, in, in firing and uh, making sure that the engine steams so that you can put water in the boiler because you, you're putting cold water in the boiler. So the engine has to, to be making steam sufficiently to overcome the heating of the cold water and actually maintain that steam. It's also, when you're putting the coal on, you've got to put it in the right places. It's not just a case of uh, just opening the fire door and throwing it in, you know, like a lot of people think. Did you have to load the coal first in, into the train? Yes, we uh, had a coal man who filled uh, baskets of coal and we lifted it up and tipped it into the coal bunker. If you were doing a run to Ramsey with some of the engines, though, the coal bunker was uh, was not sufficient and we used to put about uh, another hundred weight of coal on the floor of the engine to make sure we had enough to get back. Number 10, which was... Um, G.H. Wood, that was uh, quite an economical engine. You could you could fill the coal bunker on that and, and it would do a trip, a round trip. But uh, number 12, Hutchinson, he used to uh, have to put another couple of hundred weight on the floor and, and you were completely empty when you, when you got back. Well, I can remember um, when I was firing for Percy Kane, we uh, were leaving Ramsey, um, getting towards um, Lazare, and um, all of a sudden a sheepdog appeared on the track and it was obviously too too late to, to even thinking about braking. And this, this dog went underneath the engine at the back because we were going bunker first. And um, when I looked down the train, this dog jumped out between the first and second coach and ran off. Um, nothing wrong with it. How on earth we didn't uh, harm it at all when you consider that the ash pan of the engine is only about five or six inches from the top of the rail. Uh, I have no idea. It was amazing. Thank you to steam train fireman David Wollstoneholm, reminiscing there with David Collister. And so to a couple more of Qualtro's queer ones. Master storyteller Ian Qualtro affectionately sharing recollections of friends and family from his lifetime in the south of the island. In a few moments, we'll hear about his two uncles, Percy and Jimmy. But first, let's meet Joe Tate. Well, Joe Tate, his father apparently had farmed at Santon. And Joe was telling me one day about the father. And a man in Douglas owned the farm. And this fellow had friends. And this, I'm talking about the middle of the 19th century, because Joe would die around about 1960-ish, at the age of 95 or something. So he'd be born in the middle of the... 19th century and his father had this farm and the toffs came out from Douglas one day riding they the went toffs out, the toffs oh. Douglas butties they would do. <laughs> and he came out on their horses and they were riding over old Tate's farm and they went into the field where the bull was well, once the bull saw them, he, he was after them, chasing them around the field. And they couldn't get off the horses then to open the gate to get out. <laughs> and this fellow was riding past old Tate, waving this piece of paper, and he's saying, we've got permission from the owner. 
We got permission from the owner. And old Tate shouted, show it to the bull. <laughs> Joe Tate came to Castletown before the, the last war, 39. It was in the 30s, I'm not sure. Now, I was only young then, 12 or 13, whatever. And I always knew Joe as an old retired man. And he, if he was 60 when he retired and lived another 35 years, mm. if I was 13, I was in my mid to late 40s when Joe died. So all my life, Joe had been retired. Well, in our firm and cultures, in those days, in the 50s and early 60s, Joe used to come in once a month to draw his pension. And his pension was nine pounds a month. Uh. And he had a checkbook of Lloyd's Bank. And they were always cross checks. So he couldn't go to a bank, and I suppose Lloyd's Bank was in Douglas, and he couldn't draw cash. Yeah. So he used to come in to us every month, give us a check for nine pounds, <laughs> and we would give him nine pound notes. He was such a nice old man. He, everybody knew him, and his wife lived to a long time too. And I think he was well over 90 before the doctor banned him from riding a bicycle. He lived in James's Road at the, at the end, but such a nice old fellow. Father had these two brothers, Percy and Jimmy. And, well, they were both sort of strange. The, my side of the family was the only one that was right. Anyway, <laughs> Percy had this shed, and Jimmy, Uncle Jimmy said to me one day, Percy wants me to help him fix the roof of the shed. And the shed was behind his house at Cor Valley. And he said, the only trouble is, when it's fine, it doesn't need fixing. And when it's raining, we can't fix it. <laughs> and it went on like this for years. <laughs> and the shed was never fixed. It, you'd say to yourself, it's like something like from the last of the summer wine. <laughs> Well, I told you about Jimmy Qualtro. Now, Jimmy was my father's younger brother, and my grandfather was a, a boat builder, and Jimmy was uh, working with him. And in those days, they were building schooners and repairing schooners and fishing boats. And the schooner's deck, they have planking on the deck, and they have to what is called cork the planks, and they leave a gap between each plank, and with a special cotton and a tool, they knock the cotton down in between the, the planks, and then they pour pitch in, yes. and that's how they waterproof the deck. Well, anyway, this day they were doing this, and there was a fellow working in the yard called Billy Panama. Now, why he was called Billy Panama, I don't know. And uh, he was going along on his hands and knees, corking the deck. Well, somebody had given him a claw hammer coat. That's a, an old coat with tails, you yes. see. And so he was going along, and they were all thump, thump, thumping with their cork and mallets and thump, thump, thumping. Well, Jimmy went up behind Billy Panama and with a couple of nails, nailed the coat tails to the deck. <laughs> then he went up to the other end of the boat, and he shouts, Billy, come here a minute. Billy stood up, and the coat split from top to bottom. <laughs> He was mad, and he, he said to my grandfather, that son of thine, he said, will either be hung or transported. And transported, I suppose, was yeah. the fellas being sent out to Australia. That's right. 
that son of thine will either be hung or transported. Well, happily, Ian Qualtro's Uncle Jimmy was neither hanged or deported. But that story is the signal for me to thank you for your company in the archive room this week as we turn off the lights, open the door and step out into the present day where Chris Kinley is waiting with more greatest hits on your very current Manx Radio. And we'll finish with a little clue to next week's programme. Yes, it's railway stories from the archive room and the train will be leaving just after six next Thursday evening. Till next week, so long, sir. The Nation Station